Welcome to the Film Situation Podcast. As I said before, this, this film is, uh, this festival is a spiritual home for filmmakers and the art of cinema, particularly important now uh, when cinema is uh, devalued, demeaned, um, belittled from all sides. Uh, not necessarily the business side, but certainly the art. Uh, and since the 80s, there's been, you know, a focus on numbers. Uh, that is, uh, and it, it's kind of repulsive. It's like, of course, the cost of a movie is one thing. We understand the film costs a certain amount. They expect to at least get the amount back. Plus, I get it. But the emphasis is now on numbers, cost, the opening weekend, uh, how much you made in USA, how much you made in uh, England, how much you made in Asia, how much you made in the, the entire world. Um, how many views it got. And as a filmmaker and as a person who can't imagine life without cinema, um, you never always find it really insulting. And I've always known that such considerations have no place at the New York Film Festival. And here's the key also with this. There are no awards here. Okay? You don't have to compete. You just have the love of cinema here. Is just so there you have it folks that was martin scorsese talking about how the new york film festival is a spiritual home for cinema the godfather of cinema himself scorsese it was cool to see him last night i was there and I uh, recorded this little tidbit. He had spoken for about 10, 15 minutes about the history of the festival, how he had his first short film there called The Big Shave, uh, I guess a few years into the festival. The first time he heard about the festival was when he was a young man, and he couldn't even afford to attend. And then a few years later, he had his short film, The Big Shave, there. He told a pretty cool story about that because... I guess he was out to a restaurant with his friend and collaborator, Jay Cox. And then somebody got a hold of him at the restaurant and they said, Hey, hurry up, get down here, Marty, your film is showing. Um, and then they had to rush over because it was supposed to show on a different night. And then they switched nights on him, And then he had to rush over from the restaurant and, you know, showed up in the middle of the screening, which I thought it was hysterical because I've been at film festivals where things like that have happened to me. So it's kind of funny thinking about a young Scorsese and like, you know, shuffling around of like the time your film is supposed to be shown. And I've, I've seen that before. And it's, it's, it's kind of funny to have heard that story. And then he was telling the story about how when he screened Mean Streets there in the early 70s, his parents accompanied him at the film festival. And I guess his mom was in the lobby telling the festival guests like, hey, we don't use that kind of language at home. You know, like you see that language in Marty's movie. Um, we don't we don't talk like that at our house. So I thought that was a really cool story. And then then he kind of went into, you know, a little bit of a tirade against railing against box office obsession, you know, and actually, you know, of course, a lot of times when Scorsese talks about movies in the state of cinema, a lot of news outlets pick it up. Variety wrote a story about it today. Martin Scorsese rails against box office obsession. It's repulsive and really insulting. Deadline picked up the story. Martin Scorsese says cinema is devalued, demeaned, belittled from all sides. 
as his doc personality crisis one night only has premiered at the New York Film Festival. IndieWire wrote a story saying Martin Scorsese says obsession over box office is repulsive and insulting. Even the Indian Express wrote an article about Scorsese on obsession with box office numbers. It's kind of repulsive. Now, when you were there, of course, he was talking about it, and it, it's it's concerning, and he was coming at it from a perspective, I think, of just a pure filmmaker and just saying from the heart kind of we need to keep this thing alive it's cinema you know let's keep this tradition going I feel like it's a different impression of it when you read about in the news with all respect to those outlets they have to cover the story and and I'm not saying that they're covering it the wrong way but what I'm saying I guess is it just I don't know it's just a it's it's just kind of a different vibe when you were there in person and hearing him talk it, it was it seems a little harsher somehow just reading about it in print. I, I think what he's getting at is just saying that film studios, and, you know, a lot of people have been talking about this for many years, that there's film studios that are just doing things that have been done before and just kind of looking at it from, like, a formulaic perspective. Like, hey, we're going to make this comic book movie. It's going to do this much amount of money. And then people sort of get hung up on that aspect of it versus storytelling, which is at the core of what we're supposed to do as filmmakers and as lovers of cinema for those that just appreciate it. So he was just kind of giving tribute to this great film festival, the New York Film Festival that's been around for 60 years and how it's pure in its love for cinema, which is kind of a contrast to the current sort of state of things, at least on a major, major box office sort of level. However, there's still plenty of films there's still plenty of cinema coming out all around the world there's a lot of interesting filmmakers and that's what this podcast is all about is to showcase that and to also kind of look at the business side of things too so um, anyway i really enjoyed seeing scorsese there at the film festival really enjoyed the film there's a lot sort of happening this year at the new york film festival it's kind of at the closing of the festival still there's still a few more days left over the weekend so personality crisis one night only that's the film that scorsese did with uh co-directed with david tedeschi and it's about david johansson aka buster poindexter about him doing a show at the cafe carlisle and it's intercut with other clips of the New York Dolls intercut with interviews and it's really cinematic and cool documentary. It was definitely really cool to see it. And uh, he's a charismatic guy, that David Johansson. And one thing that kind of struck me, and I've always thought about this about Scorsese, is he was always sort of on the cutting edge of things because he wasn't that young in terms of, like, he was still, like a fa like, fairly young, but he wasn't, like, a teenager sort of young when punk came out, when these bands were coming out or like the clash, like he was like, I think almost, you know, in his late thirties or almost 40 when the clash was really sort of going and he was into that band. And so it just kind of shows you that he was just sort of on the cutting edge of things throughout his life. So, so the New York film festival has been going on for 
six decades now, celebrating 60 years. Eugene Hernandez, the executive director of the New York Film Festival, has this statement. For 60 years, the New York Film Festival has celebrated the motion picture arts by showcasing a tightly curated selection, both returning and new audiences reconnected with our films and filmmakers in creative ways back in 2020. Since then, we've continued to build on the bond between art and audience at NYFF, carrying on the tradition that has emerged here at Lincoln Center since 1963. It's a contribution to the work of the New York Film Festival's founders and revered leaders, Amos Vogel, Richard Roud, Joanna Koch, Richard Pena, Wendy Keyes, and others. We celebrated those efforts more than ever in this special anniversary year. Each autumn for just two weeks, we transform Alice Tully Hall at Lincoln Center into the city's greatest cinema. Alongside our our Walter Reed Theater and venues at the Eleanor Bunn and Monroe Film Center, West 65th Street comes alive with screenings, conversations, celebrations, and community. This year, we're building on our recent work work by taking New York film festivals to all five boroughs, embracing New York and its deep connection with the 60 year old tradition. So that was from a statement from Eugene Hernandez, um, executive director of the New York film festival and senior vice president of film comment. And that's actually written in their program book of the festival. And one thing that I noticed that they actually are doing screenings this year in each borough and in Manhattan, of course it's at Lincoln center. There's even venues in Brooklyn, Queens and Staten Island and the Bronx it's they're doing screenings at the Bronx museum of the arts, which to me was actually pretty cool because that's where a few years ago we premiered my movie, the trouble. And it was at a sold out screening at the Bronx museum of the arts. Thanks to the Bronx filmmakers collective that sponsored that screening and put that together, organized it. And that was honestly, as a filmmaker screening it, there was one of the highlights of my life. So to really see that the New York film festival is using it as a venue. I think that that is actually pretty cool. So yeah, some, some other highlight films, there's, there's a bunch of films and it seems like that they have a few different, sections this year they have what's called the main slate where you have films like noah bombach's white noise that's really that was like the opening night film of the festival i haven't seen it yet i'm really excited to see it it's with adam driver and apparently it is based off a novel uh noah bombach adapted don delillo's 1985 novel which was long it was long perceived as unfilmable and, you know, it's getting a lot of buzz. I'm really excited to see it, actually. And in uh, the main slate is also something else I'm excited to see, which is Armageddon Time, directed by James Gray. And it has Anthony Hopkins, Jeremy Strong, and Anne Hathaway. And it's billed as the most personal film yet from James Gray. James Gray, of course, did... We Own the Night, Two Lovers, The Immigrant, and he's just a great New York filmmaker that I really appreciate. Would love to talk to him on the podcast. Laura 
Poitras, who's a documentary filmmaker, uh, All the Beauty in the Bloodshed. This is a new documentary from the Academy Award-winning filmmaker, Laura Poitras, um, which is, she's really weaving two narratives here, the fabled life and career of era-defining artist Nan Golden and the downfall of the Sackler family, the pharmaceutical dynasty. So I haven't seen the documentary. That's something I would also like to check out. There's a lot of international films in the, in the main slate, including an Indian film called All That Breathes, a film by Charlotte Wells called After Sun, a film from Spain and, and Italy called Alcaraz, um, a film from Austria called Corsage, and a film from France, Guy Humani Corpois Fabrica, from France and Switzerland. I don't know. I probably butchered that. And a film from Park Chan-wook. For some reason, I was thought he was Chan-wook Park. A movie called Decision to Leave. which That's also something that I'm really excited about. Probably that tied with Noah Baumbach's White Noise is what I want to see the most. Decision to Leave is a Busan detective is increasingly obsessed with a murder suspect in a puzzling new case. A middle-aged businessman has mysteriously fallen to his death and his wife might be to blame. Park Chan-wook won the Cannes Best Film Director Award for his twisting Hitchcockian detective thriller, one of his most enveloping and accomplished films, according to the New York Film Festival. Really excited to see that. So he is the director of Old Boy and Lady Vengeance. And one of my favorite movies, which is Sympathy from Mr. Vengeance. So great South Korean filmmaker. And this episode is not sponsored by the New York Film Festival. Although I still implore you to support them. They're a great film festival. They do a lot for filmmakers and for cinema. You could check out their website, filmlink.org. F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C. Org, which is the film at Lincoln Center website. It's the currently the New York Film Festival, the 60th New York Film Festival presented by Film at Lincoln Center. You can become a member of the Film at Lincoln Center and you know experience all that Film at Lincoln Center has to offer. Donors basically make it possible for cinema to be thriving 365 days a year. So even when the film festival is not going on, if you become a member, I know there's different events and you you could receive sort of early access to interesting programming, including the New York Film Festival and other sort of releases and interesting retrospectives. So, you know, really consider doing that. I would also look into the filmfoundation.org. Again, the, not sponsored by the Film Foundation, but that's an organization that is uh, founded by Martin Scorsese, and there's a lot of other filmmakers involved, including Wes Anderson, Ang Lee, and other people that really stress the importance of preserving 35-millimeter films. And it's, it's, it's essentially a not nonprofit organization, founded in 1990, dedicated to protecting and preserving motion picture history. It works in partnership with studios and archives, and it's helped to restore over 925 films, which are made accessible to the public through programming at festivals, museums, 
and educational institutions around the world. And the Film Foundation's World Cinema Project has restored 50 films from 28 countries representing the rich diversity of world cinema. The Foundation's free educational curriculum, The Story of Movies, teaches young people over 10 million to date about film language and history. Martin Scorsese is the founder and the chair. And um, so I was just reading from their mission statement. It's a, it's a really good organization. I've donated to them in the past. And uh, you could check out their website at film-foundation.org. So I implore you to check it out and support preserving 35-millimeter films. So what I'm going to be playing here, we're going to be kind of doing a throwback episode. This is talking a little bit about the New York Film Festival and also sort of a throwback to... um, I'm going to play an episode that we did with Kent Jones... I recorded this episode with Kent Jones on actually February 13th of 2020. So literally weeks before Kent Jones was the former director of the New York Film Festival and he directed he actually stepped down. He's a, he's a close friend and collaborator of Martin Scorsese and we had a really interesting conversation at that time. It was shortly after the movie The Irishman came out. So we talked about The Irishman, we talked about films that were influential to Kent Jones. We talked about his film, Diane, with Mary Kay Place. And funny enough, it was literally just weeks before we went into full lockdown mode. That was one of the last in-person meetings that I had before everybody went on lockdown mode. So this was that episode recorded a little over two and a half years ago at this point. So enjoy. So I'm so pleased to welcome writer and director Kent Jones to the podcast today. Welcome, Kent. How are you doing? Pretty good. So I, I had the pleasure of watching your film, Diane, at the IFC when you presented it there along with Martin Scorsese, who is your friend and executive producer. It was a really cool screening, and I loved the film. Could you tell us a little bit about the premise? In order to talk about the premise, I think I'd have to talk about how many years I had it in mind because really I had the first inkling of it when I was really young, like when I was a teenager, because I grew up around this matriarchy. Uh, all these, my grandmother was the oldest of many brothers and sisters. And so I really knew even when they were all still alive, I, that it was very special. Uh, and that they had a, I was very tuned into their temperament, which was uh, very stoic, but very funny. And they were all tough because they had all gone through a lot, and they had all survived the depression. And, you know, there was it's a different generation, different. Well, era. it's a particular kind of attitude and approach to life that is not really around anymore. Yeah, you know, things things are always changing. Nothing is ever around forever. I, I think I had an inkling that I wanted to do that when I was very young, and then it just kind of stayed with me and changed and took on more form and shape over the years, and different things happened. And then in the 90s, the late 90s, I saw Coppola's movie, The Rainmaker, and Mary Kay Place has a very small part in it, but her performance, um, even though she's speaking with an Oklahoma twang, and it's a story that takes place down south, emotionally it was in the key that I had in mind. And so... When I thought about it over the years, I always had her in mind. 
There was something else that I almost made, a couple of other narrative films, actually, that I almost made first, because I made other documentaries before I made the, the narrative film. But um, then at a certain point in my life, after my own mother had passed away, uh, I really, and, Mary, and I told Mary Kay, I'd met her, I'd explained to her what I had in mind. She said, well, I hope I, hope I like it. <laughs> so I mean, she wrote to me and asked me where it was at, and I promised myself that I would not respond to her until I had a draft. So, so, so was that sort of nerve wracking sending her that first draft since you had her in mind, or at that point did you guys have a friendship? We did have a friendship, but you know, I mean, if she hadn't liked it, she wouldn't have liked it. I mean, you know, it was, she was so perfect. What could it? I do? Yeah. yeah, I thought she was. Yeah, you know, I, 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 yeah. at this point, I've 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 seen the film. Uh, a couple of times, so I can't imagine anybody else have portraying that role. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing about actors, though, is that if someone else had portrayed the role, it would have been a different character. Right, true. So, you know, but having said that, no, I, it was written for her and no one else, and I, you know, sure, she could have turned it down, but I, I took, a, took a gamble. <laughs> well, <it> paid off. <laughs> um, I think what what I love about the film, um, and it's a concept that I think about in general, yeah. is that I think one of the toughest things about just being an adult is knowing sort of when to be tough and when to be tender, yes. you know, and just navigating that line mm-hmm. of you know how to how, how does she deal with her son that's going through this addiction, but then a lot of times she's remaining stoic and she's helping all her friends out throughout the film. She's always doing something, you know, she's, whether it's volunteering in the kitchen, you know, serving the needy, or if it's just, you know, baking a tray of something or visiting her cousin in the hospital or then talking to her son. But then it's, how do you decide when to be firm with your kid or when to, be nurturing, you know, and I think that's one of the toughest things that I think you really depicted very well because she was a strong character, but that's a, a tough thing for anybody. Yeah. You know, one of the things that has been, uh, you know, the response to the film has obviously been really heartening and, you know, uh, but I, one of the things that's meant a great deal to me is that on more than one occasion, someone has come up to me and said, you know, uh, I mean, there's a filmmaker that I know, for instance, I can't tell you who it is, but, you know, he said, look, I, I, I just have to say, I was that son, and that was my mother. Wow. Um, and I felt like you really did justice to it. Another person wrote me a note and said, I, I uh, that was me, you know, I was that character, uh, the mother, you know, unfortunately I lost my son, but I felt like you did you know justice to it i did not have you know write the script to capitalize on the opioid crisis as a matter of fact it predates that by quite a bit sure it's based on the characters based on uh, the experience of a very close friend of mine um but uh you know I, i i think that when you're dealing with a situation like that you're basically winging it yeah as you know that's pretty much a template for life in general. And I mean that truly, you know, that's partly what the film is about. Um, but, 
I, I, actually, that is, that's an interesting point that I also was thinking about too, because she's always sort of on point, you know, she has her to-do list and she's always kind of going from point A to point B. And the one time that she's not is then when you see, see her have the meltdown yes. at the bar, she doesn't know what to do with herself. Then she's being almost self-destructive when she's not being productive. Yeah, self-destructive, also trying to cut loose uh, in a place that obviously she used to go to when she was much younger and a different, you know, a different age and, you know, a place that's from a different time. Um, True, yeah. Still has the same jukebox, you know, I mean, it's like... Yeah, um, I remember how the, uh, I love how the bartender delivers that line. I remember you, Diane, and it's yeah. just, it's so loaded of, yeah. such a loaded line that, you know, there's a story there. Yeah, I mean... I don't know you know that's that's what it is to make a movie i think if there's anything that i value in movies it's what any given filmmaker does with you know um the creation of the world the creation of characters so that the what happens is that the the world takes on a life of its own you know i i think that it's um movies making movies is about control and making movies is also about surrender at the same time. Yeah. And so you have to know if you're sticking to something and it's ironclad and that's the way that you want it, you know, and that's the way it's going to be and you're not going to, you know, go home until you get it exactly the way you saw it in your head, then it, the result's not going to be very good. And I think that there's a little bit of a, you know, in terms of film history, people point to the example of Stanley Kubrick or Alfred Hitchcock and it's like, Yes, but with them, the same thing happens. It just happens in tinier, more precise increments. Right. You know? Yes, absolutely. But the actors in their movies come alive uh, in the same way that the actors in John Cassavetti's films come alive, but they come alive on in different increments. Right, right. You know? Yeah. That's a that's a interesting point that I think ties into the, your earlier film that was a documentary, Hitchcock Truffaut. Mm that uh, was fantastic, Thank by you. the way. I think any filmmakers in particular out there, anybody that's actually calling themselves a filmmaker, they need to watch uh, Hitchcock Truffaut. Uh, Truffaut had a quote that, um, it, it's actually in, in, in his movie Day for Night that the shooting a film is like a stagecoach ride in the Old West. When you start, you're hoping for a pleasant trip, but pretty soon, you just hope that you reach your destination. Yeah. He was quite amazing because he was really sick at the end, obviously, but he didn't really show signs of it except in the last TV interview that he ever did, which was an interview about the last thing he ever did, which was the updated edition of Hitchcock Truffaut, the book. He's shot from a particular angle so that you're not seeing, I guess, where he's had you know, his, his scars healing, you know, brain surgery. But then he still sounds pretty sharp. Uh, but then he did a radio interview that, unless I'm wrong, was conducted like, you know, maybe a couple weeks before he died. It might even be closer than that. And he sounds really sick. And I was thinking of using it in the movie, but I was like, I can't do that. You know, yeah. Just, but he said something similar, but I think even more. Uh, well, it's, it's looking at the same thing from another angle. He said making a film is like going into a fugue state. You just enter it and then you just come out the other side. And he's quite right. 
Yeah, I've I've experienced that feeling of when you finish a film and uh, you feel like you just stepped outside of a vortex yeah, or something. <laughs> that's true. You have to be all in. It's all encompassing. Yep, that's right. Uh, so prior to making Diane, uh, you were a respected critic, and how how did that you know actually similar to Truffaut, who was a critic himself prior to being a filmmaker? How did that sort of influence or maybe change or inspire your filmmaking? Yeah. I mean, I'll give you a long, complicated answer uh, and try to make it as concise as I possibly can, but don't chide me for making it no. complicated. You know, the thing is that I, I very early on in my life, I knew what I wanted to do. The fact that I took, and that was filmmaking, the fact that I took a long, you know, particularly lengthy path, I guess, to get there is, is to me kind of immaterial. I don't, you know, that doesn't really matter um, to me. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. And I started writing about films as a way of understanding films. Yeah. It's that simple. And, you know, that's something that, that Olivier Asayas and I talked about a lot over the years um, because for him, who was also a critic uh, at Caillou du Cinema for quite a while. Yeah, so <coughs> the publication is Truffaut. And me, for a while, I was their American correspondent That's in the amazing. 90s. You know, and I think that he, um, you know, he said, well, sure, it's just its preparation. It's, 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 that's what it is. Uh, over here, uh, that's not a model that a lot of people have in mind. You know, Paul Schrader uh, was a film critic. Um, and he said, you know, the problem is, Let's say you're a film critic, and this is something that only Paul would say, you know, but I, he's, you know, I understand the point. He said, you know, you're a film critic and you say, this is Dustin Hoffman's best performance in years. Then, you know, you make a movie and you want to cast Dustin Hoffman. And Dustin Hoffman's like, so you thought that that was my best performance in years. What about the other work? You know, and you're, and, and you're fucked. So yeah. it's just kind of like, I don't think Paul, I think Paul's exaggerating a little bit, but also... I know what he means. Um, I do, and he, you know, and he's also the one who said, if you're a film critic, you're like a pathologist and you're trying to find out why the patient died. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you're a filmmaker, you're trying to keep the baby alive. But I, having said that, I just want to continue with my long-winded answer by saying I had to work through a lot of things with criticism to shed a lot of stuff that was, you know, part of... Um, the world of criticism and cinephilia. Um, and eventually when I, in the last few pieces that I wrote, I was really zeroed in on uh, how movies were made, the divergence between what it was to make a movie and what it was, what people talked about when they reviewed movies uh, and the practicalities, the nuts and bolts of movies, which still is a little bit of a, you know, is, is, is mystified. I think by people, yeah. um, and so I. My basic answer to your question is that I knew a that on some level, somehow, when I was younger, that I wanted to make the kind of movie from a perspective that I didn't have yet. So that's probably part of the reason that I waited. But I also knew going in, all of the movies that I'd seen, and having that background was certainly you know, um, that's who I am. That's a great thing. It's a part of me. Uh, but then I had to 
leave it all behind except when it came to practical problems like you know how do i want to do this so i was able to have with the dp for instance wyatt garfield what do we want the movie to look like and i said i want to just duplicate what jim jarmusch did with patterson and i know him and i'm going to call him and ask him and that's what we did amazing you know or with the music i wanted the music to to function in a certain way in the movie and i thought about the way that the dardenne brothers used music and the kid with a bike stuff like that but yeah. those are just practical issues you know how's the camera going to work at the end when she's dying it's kind of like the camera where the way that it works in son of saul um you know by lajla nemesh you know but it's not exactly like that it's just that i'm able to, so i have that i'm able to you know give examples and that's yeah no for sure that actually I, first of all i love your use of the music and the score um, was that an original score the the stuff that's part of the soundtrack the, the scoring soundtrack uh it was an original score by jeremiah bornfield who composed the score for hitchcock Truffaut. but it's variations on a hymn by vaughn williams great um but um i also used a piano piece by john cage um, when she's driving up to the forest you know. yeah and i noticed it was it was sort of unique because it was sort of sparse the first time we hear the scores i think at least five scenes in when she's, so about she's going to his house to for the brian's first house to yeah. check up on brian mm -hmm. for the first time and, yeah you know and well yeah music i mean you know the thing is that it's like any element in a movie why is it there right so it's like it's like Marty Scorsese would say, if a movie's in black and white, great. Why is it in black and white? What is the black and white? You know, there's some movies that are shot in black and white now, and you're kind of like, why? Right. And then there's some movies that are shot in color where it's just sort of like, okay, whatever. You know, you could, you know, they're just shot. Right. It's and not a rhyme or reason. That's about it. And so I wanted, you know, if, if there's music in a movie, what role is the music going to play? And so I wanted a hymn because I wanted something that underscored the devotional aspect of her character. Yeah. Um, and her relationship with her son. Yeah, no, no. I, th I think that's amazing. Mm. Um, well done. I'm, I'm always curious how films evolve. You know, like you kind of mentioned that earlier, that you know, you'd been thinking about this mm. for a long time, and I'd heard you in the past, including on, at the IFC. It was, it was kind of based off your mom. Um, yeah, I only figured that out later. But. Yeah, it's interesting. It is interesting. And actually, that sort of ties into something that uh, I think it was uh, David Fincher that said in your documentary on Hitchcock Truffaut that a filmmaker can't really escape sort of who they are. It bleeds out into your film. So I thought that was really fascinating. And Fincher is a real guide. He's someone who really... He just keeps his eye on on, on the work. Yeah, um, he's very focused. You know, he's really focused, and and um, it, it everything that he said, he he thinks he's so funny. He thinks he's so articulate. He's very funny. But when, <laughs> but you know, every single thing that he said, I could have used in that movie. Yeah, everything. Yeah, um, and um, but the what you're referring to. He's absolutely right. He's like, you know, your prurient interests, your whatever. It's just like you can't. It oozes out. Yeah, somehow. Yeah. And so when a film is not really working or when something isn't quite happening quite right, such as, you know, 
certain films that are nominated for Oscars and supposedly going to win them. You know, I mean, it's just sort of like you can, there's something about the way that they're put together where the, the level of anxiety and fussiness behind the camera manifests in a weird way. <laughs> yeah. Somehow, you know, yeah. always. And I think that that's something that's a little bit lost. One of the things that's been lost in criticism with the collapse of the newspaper industry and all that stuff, you know, is, is that a little bit of discernment about that. I think that at the moment in film criticism, there's a little bit too much focus on form on the one hand and, uh, you know, and the behind same the stuff. stuff. Well, no, but the themes, you know, right, right. sort of like, uh, yeah. So I, I, but I feel like, you know, what's the life of the movie? That's, that's a really important one. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I, you know, I I'd mentioned this over email that your film definitely rewards repeat watchability mm. because there's things that, that I definitely caught watching it again that I didn't notice the first time. Because on the first time, you're just sort of on the, on, on the journey. You're trying to figure things out. You're, yeah. you're trying to understand things about the character and each of the characters and what their relationships are to each other. And then w once once you're watching it without you know, trying to figure out those things, then you're kind of just completely immersed, you know? And so I, I will say, I, I want to get a button here. That's a spoiler alert. <laughs> I mean, I, I hope it's okay to talk about the ending because it's a, it's a very character driven film. It's not hinging on the plot. It's, yeah. but when I first saw the film, I, I don't think I understood the scene where Diane is at home mm. toward the end. And, you know, then there's a, the guy that, Oh, sort yeah. of like Christ-like, and but then all of a sudden he offers her heroin, and there's mm. that strange music playing. I'm like, hey, that was kind of, yeah, you know, I was like that was kind of interesting, you know, like, mm. you know, what was up with that scene, you know? Yeah, I didn't dislike it; I just didn't understand it. But then upon watching it again, yeah. and a, and even a third time, I love it because you're so immersed in her world that you pulled off something that's really fascinating to me that you've pulled us into her subconscious mm. that like that's her dream. And then, then it feels really natural. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> it's very important to me that the inner world and the outer world are very, you know, there is no border. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, someone who really had a very clear understanding of who opened that up in cinema really is Ingmar Bergman. I mean, you know, it wasn't, on my mind when I was making the movie, but then rewatching a lot of his films, you know, it just, there, I mean, in Cries and Whispers, there is no borderline between yeah. the inner world and the outer Persona, world. Persona, all his films. Persona, yeah. yeah, Hour of the Wolf particularly, you know. And so um, that's something that was just part of the movie. Uh, and then that also works in terms of the sense of time in the movie. And I do admire, I, I I like the idea of giving the audience something that they're not necessarily going to understand immediately or, or take in immediately and only take it in a reflection. Um, for some, yeah. for some reason people seem to be, um, you know, that's a, that's a, a, a thing that's easy to sort of like, um, if you're itching to ask a question at a film festival or something like that, you know, uh, that's, that's something that can come to mind, like off the tip of your tongue. It's like, what was up with that scene with the, you know, and you just be like, well, you know, 
it's a dream. I no, it's yeah, it, it's great, and it makes so much sense, especially, like I said, after repeated watchings that I really love the scene, and I love how even the music comes in, because it's so natural where she's sort of dozing off, and before that she's writing poetry yeah. at that point in the film. And yeah, the music in that scene is very, uh, you know, um, when I was young, uh, I was a really big Brian Eno fan, and Brian Eno opened a lot of doors for me uh, one of them was to Steve Reich's music. And so in the film, in fact, you know, there's this piece, the tape delay piece come out to show them that's playing when she goes in and, he, you know, Jake's character is all junked out, you know, um, that kind of. Um, yeah. And then, but uh, that piece that's playing um, at that point, when she wakes up from the dream is a piece by the um, uh, Moving Star Hall Singers, um, from the Georgia Sea Islands that Brian Eno and David Byrne sampled for My Life in the Bunch of Ghosts. Their album was sort of like the beginning of sampling you know, in the late 70s. And uh, um, and then it's a, it overlaps with another Steve Rice tape delay piece. But that's all part of my, you know, uh, toolkit, I guess, you know. But it seemed, it felt right. Yeah, no, it's, it definitely. So I know that, uh, and forgive me if you've, get asked this <laughs> a lot, but since uh, Scorsese was the executive producer of the film and he's a close friend of yours, you know, and sort of mentored you, and what kind of, I guess, guidance did he give you on the film? Was he watching rough cuts of it? or? <laughs> you know, I mean, um, he's always encouraged me. Uh personal you know you know there was a point when i was uh, on gonna make a movie you know this is probably in the 90s and there was someone else who was in his orbit at that time who, who wasn't you know who was also you know had a script that he was trying to get made and he said you i know are gonna make you know your movie him i'm not so sure about but you you have the the drive at a certain point um there was a project that got very close to being made, and then I, uh, a bunch of things were going on in my life, and it was just like I have to put this on hold for a minute. And I, I, the thing that that really was on my mind at that point the most was like I don't want Marty to think that I'm just like dropping out of you know making movies. Uh, and I made Hitchcock for Poe after that and stuff like that, and you know, um, but I think. Um, when I set it up, I, I wanted to do it. It's, you know, the movie was made really thanks to Oren Moverman, um, uh, who had just started a company with, with, um, called film, a sight unseen. Um, Carolyn Kaplan, Luca Borghese and Ben Howe, but Oren was the one who brought the, who said, okay, we have the money, you know. Uh, and, um, Marty, read the script, <coughs> understood what I was going for. Uh, he looked at, we did look at cuts, but the cuts was, it was, I was, I got a little further along than a rough cut before I showed it to him. Um, it wasn't quite rough, but it was, certainly wasn't finished either. So we went through it, you know, scene by scene, and then we went through it again. Uh, there was some, a certain point when he uh, 
when it was suggested that I change the ending, and I just l- told him, really? <laughs> and he yeah. just started laughing. <laughs> and so, you know, um, but it was a very gentle suggestion. Sure, it was sure. Just, I, uh, you know, it was very funny. So anyway, um, no, I mean, he's just been behind it. That's but, amazing. Yeah. yeah, amazing. Just in general, one of my observations that I really like your use of exposition. It wasn't, there wasn't too much of it. It was, you know, you, you, you're kind of just pulled into our world from yeah. the beginning frame of the film where you know, before you actually even see the first frame, you're just hearing the noises at the hospital. And yeah. She had dozed off because she's visiting her cousin. Then she feels bad about it, yeah. which I think was a nice moment. And I, I like the way that uh, Donna's looking at her yeah. in that, in that moment. So it was, you know, it started off. Um, yeah. The actress who plays Donna is actually from my hometown, which is just amazing. That is amazing. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that in general, uh, any movie that I'm going to say that I that I love is pretty much like that. Nothing is spelled out. Everything is, I mean, given, but, you know, with the caveat that at a certain point in film history, at an earlier point in film history, uh, films were made, narratives were structured in, in a different way. But still... Even having said that, you know, Hitchcock, one of the, in the film, I don't show the outside of Diane's house until deep, deep, deep. In I noticed that. Yeah. Um, and, and I didn't notice that until, you know, subsequent viewings. Well, you know, I mean, that is one thing that I must say is, you know, um, could be related to, you know, Hitchcock Truffaut because Hitchcock said never waste an establishing shot and establishing something always use it when it's actually going to have some emotional value. Don't waste any shot on just, you know, yeah, I noticed something. I noticed that that actually yeah, ties into the pacing. I thought the pacing was was outstanding. Well, I wanted to have a sense of time that as the movie went on became something different. In yeah. other words, like I wanted the driving sequences to punctuate the movie, but I wanted that at a certain point they were going to function as something else more than just driving in a car and that like the, the movement of time in the movie was going to become different. Yeah. yeah it's good quote. Uh, your friend David Fincher again, uh, directing his behavior over time. That's right. Well, it's two things. It's making, he says, <laughs> he says it's editing behavior over time and it's taking things that are really long and making them short and taking things that are really short and stretching them out. Yeah. No, I thought that was uh, quite right. For sure. Yeah. I'd love to actually... Could we watch one of the scenes from the film? Sure. Which one? Okay. It's actually the scene where she's at the buffet and she doesn't want (laughs) to... She doesn't want to hear it anymore about Brian. We're going to have a full house for Christmas again. They're bringing the kids. It's time to be a chore. You know what I mean? I love them to pieces, but, you know, I've got the Christmas tree, and then i got to do the cooking, and then the grandkids are running around, and then I get to be really tired, and I start snapping at them. You'd miss them if they didn't come. Yeah, but, you know, I'd like to be in an easy chair looking down on them. I am just so goddamn sick of it, and I can't stand to hear me or you or anyone else say one more goddamn word about it. 
Brian, you mean? Who else? was this place before it was Country Buffet? What the hell was it? Mmm, finest kind. Finest kind, that's it. God, it was the worst food I ever ate. Was it? Yeah. Oh, I don't know why I don't remember that the food was no good. Well, when we get to laughing and yucking it up, who gives a damn anyway? We might as well be lapping up a bucket of fried sawdust. It wouldn't matter. Well, it's better than this deliciousness. That's right. How is everything tonight? Tremendous. Thank you. Liar. <laughs> I love that you held it on her look after. Well, for a, for a, a decent moment. Right, maybe we should just wait for the sirens to go by. <laughs> yeah. Okay. For a moment. Yeah. You must cut a lot of them around this neighborhood. Yeah, we do. Um, yeah. <laughs> On the other it hand, it is what it is. It's New York. It's Manhattan, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Why bother? You know, there are a few things about that scene. I mean, one of them is that every element of a movie counts. Every element of a movie counts. There's nothing where it's just sort of like, oh, yeah, you know, give me whatever. If, right. you know, and, and when, when you, again, you know, if you're making a movie, you've seen movies where you can tell that that's kind of what's happened. Somebody said, oh, yeah, sure, just give me whatever sheet, you know, whatever color sheet you want hanging on the line, whatever shirt you want on the character. And it's just like, no, you know, that's what you do. Again, to refer back to my friend Asayas, you know, he said directing is basically answering questions all day long. Yes. And you just respond, 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 respond. It doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. There is no such thing. You just respond, you know. And so with that scene... One element that's very important to me for the whole movie is the language. You know, the way that the people talk, where I grew up, the world that I grew up in, is a way that I don't even know if people still talk. They might, they might not. All I know is that that was, that was what I grew up with, and that was what I, you know, wanted to hear coming out of the actors. And, you know, I wanted to hear them speaking those lines. Um, and to have a certain relation to the language. Um, you know, my next movie is... a contemporary New York movie that's not going to be part of it you know but it's like that's what I what I wanted for this and then you know again to get back to this question of like establishing shots and exposition and stuff like that at a certain point one of the producers was like well how come we're not seeing any exteriors of the diner I'm like who cares I don't want to I don't need to see the exterior of the diner yeah. this is a movie we're shooting it in 20 days and we have a very limited budget so it's just sort of like you know why bother you know shooting something that I'm not going to use and actually I thought even the way you set it up was really efficient you kind of had that tracking looking shot from inside the the buffet yeah yeah so I thought that was cool how that sort yeah, of tracked you know, along into the buffet. conversation that's that's anybody perfect. who's been to one of those towns knows what they look like and if you haven't you know then look it up or something i just sort of feel, but but what's more important is their relationship to it they've gone there every 
you know, night of the week probably for like six years, once a week, you know, they go to this one, then they go to that one, you know, and so on and so forth. So, um, and then, you know, just to be a little, you know, uh, talk about some of the technical stuff, we had an issue with one of the Christmas decorations falling down that we corrected in post. Uh, the kind of thing that happens all the time in movies now. Yeah. You never know. True. Uh, so does resizing of the image. It happens constantly. Yeah. Uh, people don't worry about microphones in, in the shot anymore. They just paint them out. You know, I mean, it's just like um, there's a lot of that stuff that goes on. And then in terms of what you're talking about in editing, um, you know, first of all, I have these two actresses who are grounded in comedy. That's Mary Kay's world. Drama is not something that she's done that often. But Andrea, same thing. Yeah, Andrea was in my big fat. Creek Andrea wedding. was in my big fat Greek wedding, but for me, she's it's SCTV. I mean, it's like yeah. you know, I, and so Andrea used to be used to. I used to live in the same building as Andrea, and so I, I very, I, I just worshipped at her altar, and I very, you know, respectfully dropped a script off at her doorstep and left a note, and she was great, you know, and I, I actually wound up writing an extra scene for her. Um, amazing which yeah. which i think really is is great so you know um it made the movie better um i didn't write it on set i mean i wrote it before she was like i maybe the part i'm not sure if there's enough and then i wrote her another scene so um that scene though had more dialogue in it i don't remember what lines we cut out we sort of went into it as in progress without you know we lost a lot at the head because uh, um, it felt like the right thing to do and then the rhythm of the scene is about the eye line you know what's going on emotionally between the two of them and about someone who's making a show of not wanting to talk yeah who's exhausted who is not used to being angry, but who is used to getting defensive, who winds up getting defensive at the person who she, with the person that she's not really angry at. Right, right. Or frustrated with. And then on set, I do vividly remember saying to Andrea, okay, so what is Bobby going to do to respond? how do you respond to that you know what's it's it's a mystery because you're not really angry at her right you you know what she's going through better than anybody else and andrew said hang on let me just and so so that was improvised that was, the well her whole you know yes that whole taking her time and i was watching it on and i remember watching it on the monitor or on the thing and I was really, you know, mesmerized. And we got in the cutting room, and I looked at it, and I said, just let it play. That's amazing, man. You know, because yeah. there's a lot of filmmakers that would be tempted for whatever reason just to, to trim it down or cut it. But I let, I love the fact that it, it lingered there on that Well, moment. once again, you know, I mean, it's just like, had I been younger when I made my first film, it would have been very movie-ish, and there would have been a lot of, you know, um, homages to whoever, you know, I don't know what. Philippe Garel and Vim Vendors or something, you know, 
uh, and, and, and it would have been a very different kind of movie, but also I would have been, I wouldn't have taken the time and I probably would have been more self-conscious about the question of style. So, you know, I think thinking about the question of style is something that leaves you pretty quickly because it's like Truffaut, you know, your, your quote that you brought up from Truffaut about the runaway train and, you know, stuff. you just want to get to the station um, and, and the fugue state. But also it's just not really style something that other people can talk about. Not you. Yeah. Not the filmmaker. Um, yeah. It's a good way to look at it. I think so, you know. And so with that, I just was, but also it's just kind of like, you know, that's what the, that's, the emotion is always with the actor. Right. And it, it, your film is very much grounded in the real world. Like Diane is a real person. It, it feels like just like how when you watch The Irishman, you know, that feels like the real world. It's not mm-hmm. sort of like this Wes Anderson world, which that's great style filmmaking too, but it's a different, it's a different thing. There's like a yes, it's different, but I need to say the thing about Wes's movies that's very special is that they appear to be, there's a big difference between a movie by Wes Anderson and a movie by somebody who's imitating Wes Anderson. Like for instance, Lemony Snicket's incredibly whatever series of events, you know, or uh, I don't know, there are uh, several other movies that are you know, extremely imitative of Wes's movie making. But the thing about Wes is that every single one of his movies is grounded in a very particular place. He reinvents the, the names of things. He reinvents the symbols. The cadence of things. Yeah, but everything is grounded in a particular place everything yeah and then no, you know as a matter of sure. fact i'm just you know i've been doing something with him recently and and it's just sort of like his process is extremely um rooted in the idea of everybody making the movie being together you know yeah. in one location so that they're all sharing the experience and all talking instead of being spread out all over the place and, you know yeah yeah and uh, so I know what you're saying, but it's just, and, and, you know, obviously, yes, the centered compositions and the fanciful nature of things. And by the way, I didn't mean it in any way. No, I know. Talk. Yeah, I, yeah, I love Wes Anderson, and I would even put my own feature film that I directed, The Trouble, in that category of mm-hmm. it's its own world, like it takes place in the South Bronx, but it's sort of like an urban Western. You know, yeah. it's like it's, it's its own world, not quite attempting to be, you know, yeah. a very realistic world necessarily yeah it's its own world but uh but your film is a realistic film and even just the emotions on diane's face when she's in that diner scene you you feel it and when i've watched your film again one one of my observations is that i feel maybe like from a sense of empathy but i feel a sense of tension when they're asking about her son how's brian doing you're like oh no (laughs) yeah i mean that's very important and it's also very important that He's a bore because I've been around junkies and they're aggressive and grandiose and self-pitying and compulsive liars. And I feel like because the movie's called Diane and because Mary Kay is in every scene and because it's so much of a matriarchy, um, 
Jake Lacey didn't get as much attention uh, as he should have he because fantastic. I'm really, really happy with his performance and I loved working with him. But I feel like he, his character is not... Uh, it, that's that's what it's like, you know, with junkies. And then when they kick drugs, the addiction doesn't go away. Yeah, so that's another thing that I liked because so, when you see him... Uh, it was yeah, it was a great nuanced performance by Jake Lacey. Uh, when you see him at that roadside diner, when she you know hasn't seen uh, Brian in a long time, and you know she rushes from the hospital to go see him, and you know his portrayal of being somebody that's clean, but you know you you could still tell his nerves are shot and he's a little off. It's not quite he's just clean and he's just like a regular person all all of a sudden, which I thought that was very authentic. There's a film. I just looked at it again, actually. Uh, it's always been, it's always stayed with me. It's, uh, you know, it's a film that was made right before the best years of our lives to get the jump on it. It's about returning vets. It's called Till the End of Time. It's with Robert Mitchum and Guy Madison and uh, 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 Dorothy McGuire. And so Guy Madison is a returning vet and he lives in San Diego. Um, I think it's San Diego. Um, and uh, there's a scene where he and Dorothy McGuire go to a, a little diner, and um, they're sitting there having their milkshakes or their drinks, and then she looks over and she notices that there's a vet sitting at the counter with the shakes. And she looks at Guy Madison and she says, and so he's like, come on, uh, let's fall in. And... She sits on one side of the guy, and Guy Madison sits on the other side of the guy, and they put their arms around him, and they keep him steady until he gets it together. And um, there's something about that scene that is part of like what the scene you're referring to in Diane is, which is that it's someone who's come out of something, and the sight, and and they're and you feel that they've been blasted backward you know that they've had all the stuff that they've carried just like blasted away from them and they they look like you know they've just been thrown back into life um and uh i wanted that for him and i remember what it was like when when my friend got out of uh detox Um, a lot of the lines that jake speaks came directly from that encounter and i think it's uh really interesting it reminded me of somebody that I knew in college that had uh, a substance abuse problem, and then, but he was just a person that just got really into things. Like you know, like yeah. when, he, to me, that's was authentic about Brian. Like he substituted one addiction for another addiction and became a religious fanatic. And, yeah, you know. So I thought that was really interesting. Well, you know, I mean, it, that's not uncommon. Very um, common, and uh, it didn't. That's not the way it happened with my friend, but you know circumstances i guess and and i just um but that uh, that's very present oh you know the personality of the addict very gradually you know over the years it takes a while before it drains away i think yeah so fantastic job on making diane everybody that hasn't seen it watch it on amazon prime and i'd like to segue into our second portion of the podcast where we're asking each guest to discuss a couple of scenes that they love, maybe a couple of their favorite scenes of any movie or just, you know, 
So I'd uh, reached out to Kent mm. prior to the podcast to, uh, you know, maybe think about a couple of scenes. Mm. So w- what's the first scene that comes to mind? Well, I mean, I thought of two scenes. One is from a film that was made last year, and the other is from a film that was made in 1928. It's almost 100 years old, um, Sunrise, which is a movie that's canonical for anybody who loves cinema. Um, and it... Uh, it's a movie that actually changed filmmaking. Um, you know, it's directed by F.W. Murnau, who came over from Germany, and he directed Nosferatu in The Last Laugh. Um, and I believe, and I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think that Murnau started as a, a set designer. Um, he <coughs> was offered, probably based on the success of The Last Laugh, to be brought over in style by Fox to do anything he wanted. So he basically had all the resources of the studio at his disposal. And what he did was he made this film Sunrise, which in which he recreates Central Europe. You know, basically, you know, it's it's a movie that takes place somewhere in you know, I don't know where, you know, Germany slash Poland slash something, you know. Um, he doesn't name it. And um, it's 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 about a man who's a farmer, you know, played by, by George O'Brien, who later acted in a lot of John Ford's movies, um, uh, who's married to Janet Gaynor, um, and he's lured by a woman from the city who's come as a, you know to vacation where he lives. Uh, you know, she she becomes his lover and lures him out every night to go and love you know in the reeds under the moonlight and then she says well why don't you come with me and why don't you um drown your wife that would be a simple way to do it you know drown your wife take her across the river to the city but you can drown around the way and then take some bulrushes with you and that'll save you, you know? it, it made me wonder that scene made me wonder if it was uh that must have been shocking for its time, I feel like. Um, I mean, it was a pre-code sort of film. It's right? a pre-code yeah. film, but yeah. it's not the, as shocking as it might seem since the best-selling novel of 1925 was An American Tragedy by Theodore Dreiser, which is about, which is based on a true story, actually, um, which I, I think took place near where I grew up, of someone who pushed his, his girlfriend into the water and, you know, um, went and married somebody else. Uh, but yes, the movies are, you know, different story. Um, and it's also a film that has the cast, it it has kind of the the sense of a fable. Um, and every single shot of it is so beautifully constructed. I mean, when you hear the term mise-en-scene, some critics still use uh you can see that it's a, it's a term that i i wonder about sometimes but when you watch that film you see okay you know i i get the meaning and everything every single element of the film comes alive and murnau was someone who and interacts to create a, a really living organism and you know murnau uh, there's a beautiful quote from him where he says uh you know film is about uh, creating situations that express the most fleeting harmony of atmosphere so you know just a little breeze on a leaf on you know uh, on a tree or a glimmer of you know a, a, 
shimmering light, you know, on, on someone's raincoat or, you know, something like that. I mean, everything counts. Yeah. It took forever to film. It was filmed uh, at the same time as Seventh Heaven by Frank Borzaghi and, you know, Janet Gaynor, I think, was doing Seventh Heaven by Day and Sunrise by Night, or maybe it was the reverse. I can't remember. And um, probably the reverse, because a lot of sunrise is daytime. And it had a big effect on John Ford when he made Four Sons. And so um, there's a scene in it, the scene where he takes her out in the boat and he stands up and hovers over her. And you, she realizes that he means to throw her overboard. And she just puts her head in her hands and he can't do it. He just crumples. And his response is, is beautiful. He gets and he starts rowing furiously toward the opposite shore. And when they get to the shore, uh, she runs away. And um, he runs after her and keeps saying, don't be afraid of me. And then she gets on a tram. And it's a tram that goes from the country to the city. So I c certainly can't enumerate you know, the precise succession of shots, but it's like, you know, she's positioned in one place on the tram where she will not look at him. He's standing. Um, the tram conductor you mostly see from, you know, behind. And the tram has windows, you know, basically what you're doing is you're seeing the world passing by from two angles, from out right in front of the tram operators, you know, and then from the side view, the side windows, um, and I think at one point they're overlooking a gorge and some and some trees, uh, and gradually, as the tram goes, it goes from the country to the city, and the landscape gradually changes. And as the landscape is changing, and as our vision of things is changing, and as the husband is getting closer to the wife, you really feel the passage of time and the turning of their relationship the emotion the emotions between them as with the movement of the train it's an absolutely remarkable thing um and that is you know for me fundamental to what cinema is um where and this goes back to what we were talking about before with diane you know the the, the inner world and the outer world are the same thing yeah um they're just different pathways to get there you know um, and and so it's a film that I hadn't looked at for quite a while, but I remember, you know, but I, but I looked at it again last night and it's even more powerful, I think, than, um, than it was in the past. I remember seeing it for the first time when I was in my, when I was in my teens, maybe, um, and just seeing it again and again over the years. Um, it's a film that's, it was considered a lost film at some point, right? No, not Sunrise. Okay. Okay. Not Sunrise. No. Okay. Um, but it's, it's, uh, no, there are other films of Murnau's. There's a film of Murnau's that was lost called Four Devils. Yeah, maybe that's... Um, and that's, that, that remains lost. But um, it's a film that was of enormous, you know, importance to filmmakers at the time and then subsequent filmmakers, Godard, you know, all of the people in the French New Wave and beyond. Uh, and it's, it's uh, one of the great, you know, moments in cinema and it was a movie that didn't really set the box office on fire when it first came out and that became more you know 
um, that's that's the thing. When a film is great, it doesn't matter how many awards it doesn't win, you right. know, or how well True. it does or doesn't do at the box office. You know, Vertigo being a case in point. Yeah, um, great case in point. Yeah, um, and Sunrise being another. Which that's something I uh, forgot to mention earlier is I think that was I, I don't think a lot of younger people realize that Hitchcock didn't quite get the critical respect for vertigo. No, just, yeah, just in general from vertigo or just a, a lot of his work until, you know, oh. critics like Truffaut, you know, that's what your film yes. sort of highlighted in a really intri- intriguing way. I, I didn't really know that, you know, you just, I sort of grew up respecting Hitchcock and loving his movies and, mm-hmm. you know, even watching you know reruns of his shows and just you know, yeah. thinking like, Hey, that was the personification of a film director. Yeah. That hits, it's yeah, Hitchcock. they're kind of all great. Yeah. I mean, you know. And so, so it was kind of mind blowing that, you know, he was not quite taken as seriously by critics. Uh, here, know, yeah, here, right in the U.S., uh, but in France, they, you know, they would write about him, yeah, in a different way. Uh, what I find about uh, the history of French filmmaking is that I think they had a they had an interesting evolution because I think when Godard and Truffaut were watching a lot of those films, they weren't watching them with subtitles because I think it was post-World War II France. I, th- I remember reading something mm-hmm. up like w- when they were very young, when they were really like young kids. So they were just watching the images and the images were, was sort of dictating the style of you know their earliest formation of film. They were, these are all guys that were born around 30, 32. Right? Yeah. So when the war ended, they were 15, 16. And the thing is that um, during the war, obviously, American movies were forbidden. Right. Um, and it took a few years before they came into the country. When they did come into the country, they flooded in. I mean, I think the first time Citizen Kane was seen in France was probably 46 or 47 or something like that. You know, And so that's, and I'm sure that they were subtitled. It must have been. Um, I, I think that what you're referring to yeah. is the Cinémathèque Française, where um, Henri Langlois did not want to show subtitles. So they would see older films, anything that they saw at the Cinémathèque. It's, you know, even money that they saw without subtitles. That's true. Yeah. 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 But anything that was playing commercially, it would have to have had subtitles or be dubbed. Gotcha. Um, so I guess let's talk about the, the second film, which, uh, the Irishman, mm-hmm. which by the, by the way, I don't know if anyone's ever pointed this out to you, but I, I think Diane is structurally similar to the Irishman it's, and I think in a, in a great way, it's, but I th- uh, it's come up. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a, it's a good, only because I only realized it when I was describing it to a friend of mine. It's kind of like yeah, the, the Irishman's Irishman about a bunch of old men who die, and Diane's about a bunch of old ladies who die. <laughs> uh, I think that I think I think that um, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, the, the, obviously, obviously, it's not something that we that he and I no, and obviously they're each their own unique stories. Yeah. I think it's just you know, yeah. it, no, I mean, I remember at a certain point he said, you know, it's uh, interesting because I'm kind of dealing with. Some of these things, you know, too. Uh, Scorsese said it himself. Yeah, too. just a, a bit in, in, in our movie, you know. Well, I think it's great 
because you see different perspectives. Like you see how Diane deals with things or, you know, then if you're (laughs) sort of contrasting to the sequence and kind of the ending of the Irishman that you want to discuss starting from the banquet scene and then even going to when Frank is that he has his kind of weird superstition that he doesn't want to be buried underneath the ground. Mm. Uh, Instead, he wants to be in a tomb because he feels that that's less final. And I think that's really authentic. Um, So I I sort of, I grew up in the Bronx and I grew up, um, my dad had a business on Arthur Avenue, Mm -hmm. uh, very legit business, by the way, Mm. but I grew up in an area that was like the little Italy area. Yeah, sure. You know, where, you know, it was a, you know, I, so I grew up around a lot of that, mm-hmm. around, you know, that sort of gangster element. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm i part Italian, um, Abruzzese, and I didn't grow up around that, you know, New York, the Bronx, Arthur Avenue, Little Italy, Sicilian, Neapolitan. It's a different kind yeah. of thing. I mean, I'm Albanian. Yeah, you know, there's Albanian. a lot of Albanian... Uh, and there's a lot of Albanian and, and, and like um, Bosnian in Arthur Avenue now, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah now, Like there are yeah. Burrek restaurants. Yes, right there. there are. There are. Yeah, there yeah, is, yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. But Albania is so close to It's Italy. so close. I always say, you know, Italy is shaped like a boot. Yeah. If the boot kicks backwards, it's kicking Albania because yeah, it's just across the Adriatic Sea. So, yeah. you know, I grew up in a very Albanian Catholic family. Yeah. So, and I grew up in a part of the Bronx, um, Pelham Parkway with other, yeah. you know, with Sicilian kids and you know, very culturally similar. John Belushi was Albanian. Yeah, he was yeah, one of the most famous ones. <laughs> um, but so I just wanted to mention that because I think the Irishman also just, I love, it's, it's so authentic, you know, it's like one of the most authentic gangster films. Yeah. Where to start? You know, I mean, I watched the Oscars this year because I was out in LA and for the first time in years, I actually endured the broadcast itself. And, you know, I mean, it was like, whatever, just as much of a slog as it always was. But, you know, I mean, Marty was nominated for a bunch of things. And, you know, I'm a friend of Noah Baumbach's. And, and I, you know, everybody knew that they weren't going to win these it's awards. Good year for movies. Yeah, it was a good year for movies, yeah. not a good year for the Oscars. But, the, but, True. Or whatever, but it was a pleasant surprise what won. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm Award, but, you know, I, I, I must say that uh, when, you know, when Chris Rock got up and he made the joke, oh, Marty, I love the first season of The Irishman. You know, that obviously begs the question about the length. And so, you know, again, people, when they're at film festivals or when they're, you know, they have sort of sometimes people in any situation, it doesn't matter whether it's about film or not, can have sort of like a, a preset so it's like, oh, that's really long. Before they're even thinking about, yeah, you know, and so, yeah, the Irishman's really long. A friend of mine told me that you know some Academy voters feel that the middle hour lags. Um, all I can say is, <laughs> to each his own, you yeah, know, whatever. If you really are intent on the film lagging, and you know you feel like three hours is a lot of time because you need to get back to you know your iPhone, um, <laughs> then you know. Sure. If you're going to say that something lags, why not that? All I can say is I just don't think it's true. Um, well put. And I, you know, the proof being um, that, uh, you know, my wife and I went to see the movie. It was pretty much finished, but it was before they had done any of the 
visual effects. And yeah, everybody, Bob and Joe and Al Pacino had little dots. And, you know, I was, both of us were mesmerized. And when it was over, we're like, oh, can we start that again? <laughs> and I mean, you know, I mean, it's like, yes, Marty's my friend, but he's not, but it's like whatever. An ex- a film still experience gonna, is a yeah. film experience. You right, know, right. You know, You're still going to either I respond to the film or not. his films before I, I yeah. you know, knew each other. And so uh, that's one thing. And in terms of the length, what you're doing when you're watching the movie, it appears, you know, I think someone said something like it, it's a film that doesn't really have a narrative. Again, not true. It's just that it's like, what is the narrative? Right. Is the narrative um, about, you know, Jimmy Hoffa being killed? And, you know, is the narrative, what is the narrative? Is it about, is it about the unions? Is it about, you know, the mob? Yeah. It is, but then it isn't. Right. And um, it appears to be very straightforward until you stop and remember that you're watching a movie that begins with someone in an, a nursing home remembering a trip he took. The trip that he took prompts memories of his relation, his friendship with Russell Buffalino. So you're dealing with a flashback within a flashback and a series of flashbacks, really. You're shifting back and forth between the trip and the past, you know, and then every once in a while, you know, and then you're back to the nursing home. And then, you know, so it's like, it's a film with an extremely complex structure that does not appear to be complex because it's so fluid. And it's, an, it's a film with an incredible amount of characters and locations. I mean, I think that there are like 250 locations and like 500 speaking parts in that movie or something like that and you're just everything is so fluid that you're not really i mean you're aware of it but it doesn't really it's it's just what it is you yeah know, it is what it covers is. so much ground you know you will it, it, it keeps growing in your mind after it's over at a certain point in the narrative you start to become tuned into Joe Pesci's body language with Bob De Niro. So good. Things are getting out of control. And you start to understand, and, and he's gentle all the way through. And it's like, look, certain people, I'm not going to say who, but they're having a problem. You know, um, and at a certain point, around the point where the banquet be- happens, you understand that things are, ramped up a little bit so much yeah but it's not like you know nobody has a big outburst except right. for tony salerno you know right I mean, it's like you know but that's that's different but you 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 understand that things are that things are moving up another notch yeah it's and like so bubbling about beneath it, the surface yeah and so at the banquet yeah it's a banquet scene you know they're honoring him but what it also is it's a scene of looks and all the way through the movie Anna Paquin's character does not, she has one line of dialogue in the whole movie or two, right? But she's a crucial, crucial character. And the film really is all about her in the sense that she's seeing absolutely everything without saying anything about it. The wives are seeing absolutely everything too, but they have a vow to not say anything about it. She's seeing absolutely everything, but not saying about it because she's just the one who sees. She's the one who witnesses everything. And you're seeing it all play out in that scene. 
and you're also seeing Bob De Niro watching the interactions from a distance as he's being honored between you know Joe Pesci and Al Pacino, and then a heartbreaking moment when Joe, Joe Pesci says, "Well, you know, some people would think you might have a failure to appreciate Al Pacino." So, you know, and then you in, and and when he says in so many words something like. I'm sorry, it's just me. I'm not going to change. I can't give up my union. Yeah. And then you know that something has happened. And at the same time, Joe Pesci gives Bob De Niro that ring. Yeah. And the ring, you know, the weight of that ring, you can really feel. Um, and from there, you're shifting to the trip, and then you're getting into the machinations of are we going to meet at the Red Fox I think it's called the Red Fox Lodge, you know, or whatever. And then, you know, when Joe Pesci's, you know, says to Bob when they're eating their corn, their their cereal, we're not going to go. We're going to take. We're going to take a plane. You know, listen, I did all I could for him, but I had to keep you in this. And then that unbelievable moment when they're in the car and he says, "Give me your sunglasses." What is that? It's a very mysterious moment, but it's also a moment that it carries an enormous amount of emotion. And Bob's character knows what he has to do. And the plane takes off, and the plane lands. He gets into the car. The gun is there. And as those things are happening, you realize that's when his soul is being damaged. Yeah. When he actually kills Jimmy Hoffa, it's unremarkable because right. he's already dead, and so is Jimmy Hoffa. You know, yeah, the damage is already done. But then there's more damage later. He comes back. Joe Pesci gives him the glasses back, and then there's that. You know, I better call Joe. You didn't call her yet. Why? She knows. You know? And yeah. then you know the phone call. You know, it's like, well, I, Joe. I, whatever I, I don't you know right um, and but yeah I like how for the daughter that is the smoking gun it's yeah. it's astonishing and then you know and then age becomes a real factor then suddenly it's like people start dying and then suddenly Bob is left alone There's the amazing scenes with Joe Pesci where it's just like we picked him over uh, you know over us fuck him you know yeah justification and, of it and he's just left alone. And then, you know, it's just sort of like um, the scene that you refer to where he's, where he's picking out the coffin, scene with the FBI men come, you know. Well, it kind of ties into the theme that I mentioned even when I was discussing Diane, that I think one of the toughest things uh, just about adulthood in general is sort of knowing when to be tough yeah. you know, and when to be tender, and especially yeah. in that world. Yeah. Of, of gangsters because it's like Al Pacino is, you know, Jimmy Hoffa is just grilling these guys in yeah. the get banquet scene. But you know, especially in that time, in that place with those people, that is the equivalent of a death sentence, you know, yeah. amongst everything else that happened. You yeah. Know, but, you know. But also it's just, it's the same thing as Sunrise in the sense that you're watching a series of events unfold, but underneath the series of events there's something else that's unfolding. Yeah. You know right, what I mean? Right. And it really, and then, you know, when you're seeing him flip through the pictures, you know, of his loved ones, and one of them is Jimmy Hoffa. And do you know who that is? Yeah, yeah. sure you know who that is, you know. And then 
he's having the, the conversation with the priest who's played by a real priest um, and they you know they improvised a lot of that and I really you know I and and here I, I really have to say Bob De Niro it's a it's on the one hand astonishing and on the other hand not at all surprising that he didn't get any recognition for his performance in the movie because it's like <laughs> it's so good that it's the kind of acting that people don't actually reward it's like Robert Forster and Jackie Brown. You know, yeah. don't know just how, you know. And he's, un, Bob has never been afraid of simplicity. And at this point in his life now, he's just, you know. So when he has that amazing scene with the priest where he says, well, you know, the priest says, don't you feel any remorse? And he says, well, you know, water under the dam. But what kind of a man would make a phone call like that, you know? And then at the very end of the movie, uh, can you leave the door open just a crack? Yeah. And you realize when you've seen the movie more than once that the whole issue of leaving the door open is something that's been, the seed has been planted before. By Jimmy Hoffa, yeah. Jimmy Hoffa likes to leave the door open and then Bob doesn't want to be buried. He wants to be, you know, because right. who knows, you know. What, right. So I, I, I really feel, and, you know, it's also the reality of a nursing home, day turns into night, you know, what it's like in those places i've certainly spent enough time in them and so um and uh, you know the one last factor that i would talk about is that we're so used to seeing in movies about aging older people played by younger people to see the reverse is something new yeah um and i don't i think that people are bringing a kind of perspective these guys are bringing a kind of perspective that they would not have had been made 20 years ago or yeah. 30 years ago it's an interesting point yeah, yeah i think yeah it was amazing it was performances all around by that film yeah and i love uh joe pesci's performance in particular yeah. the banquet scene that might be my favorite actually my favorite scene in the movie uh and is the banquet scene and the scene within the scene of the banquet scene where he's talking to fat tony salerno uh, played by dominic lombardozzi yeah because uh He's actually from Arthur Avenue. Yeah, um, that actor, and I thought I just I just love what's going on, the dynamics of everything that's going on. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, and all the looks that are passed back and forth between all these people, and then you know, I mean, the outer shell of everything. You know, looking up at the stage, <laughs> the guy from the NAACP and uh, Frank Rizzo, the mayor of Philadelphia. I'm gonna remember that guy. You know, it's <laughs> it, it's, it's just amazing. Yeah, know, the food that they're eating dancers so absolutely amazing so what's what's uh what's next on the agenda kent what's next on the horizon for you as i said it's a new york movie i don't want to say too much about it but it's just um it's uh another film in which an actress has to be in every scene (laughs) (laughs) but it's but this is for someone who's younger for someone in their 30s yeah and are you sort of in the pre-pro phase or i'm waiting for an actress to read it Okay. Well, definitely. Supposedly reading it as we speak. We'll see. But yeah. I definitely look forward to that one. And thank you. We really appreciate having you on. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. Thank Thank you, Ken. Thank Thank you for listening to the Film Situation Podcast. Hosted by Zef Kota. Executive producer Jeff Cutler. Music by Yuri Ryback.